episode of the golden age of islam and as in the last couple of episodes we're going way back to the beginning and so this episode would chronologically be number three if you're starting from the beginning if not and you've been with us from the beginning then thank you very much for your support and today we're going to talk about the beginnings of the life of the prophet muhammad not just his life, but the whole genre of studies and literature that develops around his life. And of course, this is of great importance to the story of Islam. So, I hope you'll stay with us for this episode. Welcome back. So, today we're going to talk about a whole genre of Arabic literature, which is known as the Sirat uh, genre, and this is biographies of the Prophet Muhammad. And so, unlike um, the founders of a number of religions out there where there are controversy about whether the actual person may have existed or not, uh, we have a tremendous amount of detail about the life of the prophet, because by the time of his death, he was one of the most important uh, political, certainly religious, military figures of his time. And so our uh, issue here is not so much a lack of sources and a lack of information, but rather an abundance of sources. And so if you study classical Arabic literature, for example, this is one of the entire genres that you would study, the sirat genre. Now the word sira uh, generally means a path or a trajectory. Um, it's where we get the word for car, comes from this. Uh, but when we say sira datia, and specifically, that means a biography, or, or literally the path of a person's life. So anybody can have a Sira Dhatia, Sira Dhatia of Abraham Lincoln and Oliver Cromwell and so forth. However, uh, so many of these have been written about the Prophet Muhammad that we often talk about the Sirat as a genre in itself. I mean, technically this is the Sira Nebawiya, meaning the prophetic prophetic biographies, but there are so many of them when you when you talk about the Sirat genre, uh, people know what you're talking about. And these continue to be written uh, to this day. In fact, uh, one of the books that I am using here uh, as a resource specifically for this purpose is Rahika Maktoum, which was the winner in a worldwide contest uh, held by the University of Medina for writing the best biography of the Prophet. Okay, uh, and this is written by Safiya Rahman al-Mubarak Puri from the Islamic University of Medina, which is Saudi Arabia's leading religious school, uh, one in which they have pumped a lot of money to try and make it the leading uh, Sunni Muslim school in the world. And of course, this was written in Arabic, and like just about most of the things they publish, uh, translated into a really bad English translation and distributed worldwide. Uh, but anyway, this is just to show you that this is uh, an ongoing academic discipline, that not only are biographies being written, but we can have a, a worldwide contest to see who writes the best biography. And, of course, that means there are a lot of sources, a lot of traditions to draw on in order to be able to do this. Now, that, of course, naturally raises the question of when was the first sirah of the Prophet written? 
And this, of course, we can't say for sure because they didn't start out as full biographies, right? This was not a, a genre that we had. Uh, they sort of evolved from other things. As we have talked a lot in the past, of course, the Hadith is one of the most important um, genres in um, Islamic uh, law and Islamic um, theology. Of course, the Hadith are the sayings of the Prophet. And we, we, in fact, have an entire episode on that. It's one of the early episodes in this uh, study because it's extremely important. And this became an entire discipline of study in Islam, collecting, analyzing, interpreting, uh, and organizing the hadith of the Prophet Muhammad and the sunnah of the, the Prophet, the behaviors and the specific things that the Prophet did. And so as those things grew, I mean, if you had more and more of these and more of these relating to stories from his earlier life, out of this uh, emerges an entire biography. So collections of hadith have been put together for various reasons. You, you put together a collection of hadith on a specific subject um, by a specific author. This is the way they're, they're normally, the most famous ones are done by the person who did the research. But there's a whole famous uh, genre of hadith collections known as um, uh, 40 hadiths, where people pick the 40 not necessarily most important hadiths, but 40 hadiths you want to concentrate on to teach important principles. So a lot of these genres are out there. Another important genre is the Marazi literature. Now, Marazi literally means adventures, or here it's referring to conquests, uh, and is, uh, this refers to the military campaigns that made up most of the first century of Islam. So those stories were told as well. So as these things got longer and longer and more elaborate and started to be combined, uh, I mean, eventually these are going to come together to become entire biographies. And, of course... The early versions of this were oral traditions, and they start to be written down later, you know, particularly as the people who know the oral traditions start to die off. Okay, uh, and I should just mention, by the way, and just so I'm not misleading about this term, sirat, um, th this is also a major form of oral literature in pre-Islamic Arabia talking about the sirah of a specific person, like one of the most famous is Sirat Antar. And Antar was a great famous warrior of the pre-Islamic period, and his sirah is one of the most famous pieces of uh, Arabic literature. Okay, so, however, the question is, which of these uh, reports, which of these biographies have been preserved and come down to us today. One of the earliest actual sirat of the Prophet uh, that we have today was written by Ibn Ishaq. He's writing at the very beginning of the Abbasid Caliphate, so that's um, shortly after 750 AD and just about a century after the Prophet himself. But of course he's drawing on uh, earlier sources that he has. So uh, Ibn al-Shaq was a tutor of the great Abbasid Khalif al-Mansur, and al-Mansur commissioned him to write a narrative, basically, of history from Adam to the military campaigns of Muhammad. Um, so conveniently leaving out the Umayyad uh, Caliphate, which the, he had you know, just overthrown, but pretty much everything else of history. Now, of course, you're talking about writing a history beginning with Adam, and um, of course you are into, you know, things that are only attested to in scriptures. Now, only parts of this uh, history, which was, you know, intended to be a grand, grand history, only parts of it remain, uh, and actually these are parts that have been interpreted and passed on by his later students, um, and even these were contentious at the time, so the, the students who passed these on did not agree amongst themselves. But the most famous one to come down to us was um, uh, polished by his student Ibn Hashim, uh, but even he admits to uh, editing out things that were, quote, 
disgraceful to discuss, end quote. And, and this is a big issue here because, it, and it's going to become even more, more important, is that uh, writing a, a biography of the, the prophet, um, you, you're going to want to leave out things that are, as he says, are, are unpleasant or goes against um, the, the message that he's bringing. And so, you know, we have to realize this is being polished to a certain extent. A big issue along these lines was the inclusion of what are called Israeliat, uh, which you can probably guess from the name. Uh, these are stories that supposedly came from Jewish converts uh, to Islam. But they're suspect because they're they're coming from these folks, even though they've converted, uh, and so you you label them as Israeliat, uh, and as you might expect, these are not considered to be uh, reliable. Nonetheless, uh, a large part of this uh, biography uh, survives. It's one part of the supposed world history that does actually make it down to us. Okay, and so from there we can, you know, identify a lot of the traditions that are very important. Okay, continuing along, as you know, uh, lineages are very, very important. They are, as we said, they're extremely important in Arabian society. They're going to be very important in later history, uh, as we've already discussed. Uh, and so establishing the lineages to the Prophet Muhammad and then after him, from him, uh, is, is very important in this counts for a whole lot, um, as, as we're going to see, and because um, this, uh, this episode is going back uh, historically, we've already talked about some of the, the different conflicts and wars that have come about specifically because of those lineages. So uh, to establish these lineages, uh, you want to start from the beginning. And so the Prophet Muhammad, of course, comes from the Quraysh tribe, or I mean, actually, it's properly just called Quraysh, uh, which was a tribal group from northern and central Arabia. It would be north of Mecca uh, today. Now, if we go way back into Arab history, the two legendary ancestors are the of the Arabs, and these are, you know, probably legendary figures. But uh, we talk about Kahtan and Adnan. And this is an, it's an important separation in, in Arab history, sort of the way uh, when you're, you're talking about Israel, you have the, you know, the split with different brothers, Jacob and Esau. You have the, the 12 brothers who become the 12 tribes and so forth. So Kahtan is said to have come from Yemen. And Adnan was from northern Arabia, which this divides the, the Arabs into two branches. Now, is you know, somewhat counterintuitive as it seems to us today, um, this is significant because Yemen at the time was a settled kingdom. Of course, Yemen is mountainous. It's got fertile territory. Uh, it had, had water. Um, it is now running out of water, but at the time, we're talking 7th century Arabia, you know, Yemen was a fairly settled place that had uh, long-term kingdoms, while the north, as we've discussed, was Bedouin, it was desert, it was, you know, did not have centralized governments and so forth. Now, I mean, with no offense to, to any of my Yemeni friends out there, I have many friends from Yemen, um, but I mean, now we look at it and, and we think of Saudi Arabia being far more developed than, than what Yemen is, but um, the opposite was certainly true at the time. Okay, the other branch, which is the one we're going to be concerned about, uh, is the, the Adnan branch. It's also called the, the Ishmaelite branch, uh, because Adnan is said to have been a descendant of Ishmael. 
And this is, of course, extremely important because Ishmael was the son of Abraham. And in the Quran, at least, this is the son uh, who Abraham was going to sacrifice. And it's through Ishmael that monotheism is established and preserved in Arabia. I mean, he's Abraham and Ishmael are said to be the ones who established the Kaaba and keep the true monotheism going. Uh, and this, of course, according to the, the tradition and the Islamic view, this is separate, of course, from what's going on uh, with the other line, the line that becomes Judaism and, you know, eventually Christianity. Okay, so the Quraysh and Muhammad are from descendants from this Adnan line, which basically, of course, takes the, the lineage back up to Ismail. Okay, also important here is the fact that Yemen, by this time, has been greatly influenced by Jews and Christians. Uh, to what extent, we, we can't really separate the reality from legend, but we know Yemen was heavily influenced by Ethiopia and um, ruled by Ethiopia for a time, and of course Ethiopia was a Christian kingdom, and in fact they have a separate Christian sect, the Ethiopian Coptic sect, which is, which is separate from the Egyptian Coptic sect and is one of the oldest uh, Christian sects in the world. Okay, so this is also important in why we distinguish these two branches. Okay, so now according to the story, this is as we're getting closer now to, to the time frame that we're, we're interested in, uh, around the 7th century, but <clears throat> slightly before this. Uh, according to story, the king of Yemen, Abraha, who is going to be the bad guy in this story. Uh, he is a Christian, and he wants to build a church to attract all the pilgrims away from Mecca. Uh, by this time, Quraysh is running the Kaaba. The Kaaba is, of course, uh, attracting all the, um, the Arab pilgrims, the Bedouin pilgrims, for you know, what is, you know, in, in reality, a, a pagan pilgrimage. As we said, there's 360 pagan idols that are in the Kaaba at the time. And so, uh, and this, of course, is a big, it goes hand in hand with the, the economic importance of Mecca as well as a trade center. So both things are going on at the same time. And so Abraha doesn't like this. Uh, he wants to attract all the pilgrims down to his area, so he wants to build a, a giant church down there that will attract them. And so remember that, you know, the way the Kaaba is working, it's a, a place dedicated to some extent, and we talked about this in the, in the last episode. The scholars are really not able to get at the, the exact... Uh, extent here, but to some extent, the Kaaba at this time is dedicated to Allah, the the overall God, but it also has, it's full of pagan idols as well, and so the idea is that people can come and worship anything you want at this shrine, whereas when once you go out in the desert, of course, we don't, we don't respect each other's tribes and so forth. This is an area of peace. So he's figuring, well, I can build a, a great big church and people can come in. And again, same thing. You worship anybody you want. Okay. Well, what happens? He does build the church, but apparently some Arabs infiltrate the area and they vandalize the church. Um, and I won't get into exactly how they do it, but it's a very naughty thing to do. Um, what they actually do, and so he gets he gets very upset, and so Abraha wants to take vengeance. Of course, he's got a kingdom, he's got an army, so he sends an army to Mecca uh, armed with elephants, with war elephants, and he's going to destroy the Kaaba. Well, once they get within range of Mecca, the elephants refuse to go forward. They bow down on the ground, okay? And of course, you know, elephants are pretty big. If your elephant doesn't want to move, uh, you're not going anywhere. Okay, so not only do they do this, but then a flock of birds comes, like like an air force, basically. And each bird is carrying three stones, one in each claw and one in the beak. 
and they bombard the the army so hard with these stones that that limbs and heads are cut off and of course this is this is a miraculous thing because i'm not quite sure how a a bird with a with a stone in its beak throws it hard enough to like cut your head off but um they do and so the the army retreats to yemen and this, of course, is seen as a miraculous event, and that year becomes known as the Year of the Elephant. Uh, not to be confused with anything in the Chinese zodiac, which doesn't have a year of an elephant, but that's, you know, this is referring specifically to an event that happens in that year. And the significance, of course, is that, uh, as I said, the, the Kaaba is seen to have been established by Abraham as a as a shrine to God. Uh, there's still worship of Allah there. Again, the extent to which that's going on compared to how much pagan worship is going on, we don't quite know. But it's still, this is a shrine to God, and so God stops it from being destroyed. Now, the year of the elephant is 570 A.D., which is the same year in which the prophet Muhammad is born, and that it is definitely not seen as a coincidence. Okay, this is, you know, things are now coming to a head. God has saved the Kaaba from, from destruction, and now he's sending his prophet. Okay. So that kind of takes us up to the time period that we're dealing with. So let's look at the Quraysh. Uh, this is the tribe, the, the large overall tribe, uh, which is going to be important. Now, one etymology says if you were to look at this, just strictly look at the root of that word. In Arabic, Quraysh um, looks like it's related to the word shark. It looks like the same kind of pattern a small shark, the same way we get the word for puppy um, from the word um, for, for dog in Arabic. So that's, that's one interpretation of that. Um, however, another interpretation uh, comes from a different root entirely and says that Quraysh uh, means basically coming together, to gather, uh, confederation. And so the implication of this is that the Quraysh is not a tribe that had long roots going back into history, but is a more recent confederation of different tribes uh, that occurred. Uh, that does seem to make more sense than, than, than being a Bedouin tribe named after a shark, but this does seem to fit. Okay, at any point... Um, the most important early leader of Quraysh, the one who really brings it together, is a man named Qusay, who lived in the 400s, 400 AD. Now, you may remember from last time, if you do, very good for you. If not, that's certainly understandable. But uh, last time, we, t we were talking about the Kaaba in Mecca, and we said it had passed into the hands of the Khuzat tribe. Um, but they had, they, they started out actually you know, restoring it to its initial uh, purpose, but by this time it had slipped into neglect. And so Qusay was leading, uh, excuse me, he was living in Syria, okay, again, to the north, but he married the daughter of the chief of the Khuzat tribe. Okay, so when the chief died, he passed the control of the Kaaba to Qusay, who is his son-in-law, whom he trusted more than his own sons from his own tribe. And this is an, an early prefiguring of a, a theme we're going to see a lot. And this is, you know, you, you have lineage, you have sons, but it's also whom you trust. And as, as we've, you know, discussed many times, um, Arabia does not have a tradition of primogeniture like they have in Europe. Um, Islam does not have one until very, very late in the Ottoman Empire. And so the idea is 
nothing passes automatically to the oldest son. I mean, you know, we, if you've studied European history, you know this, right? The, the oldest son gets the, the castle and the manor and the, and the farm and everything. Uh, the second one goes into the military. The third one goes into the priesthood. Uh, you probably don't have ones after that that live. So we don't have this in Arab tradition, and I, I think I've talked about this at, at some length. You know, you kind of have to be better when life is pretty tough. You have to pick someone you you actually trust, right? You don't just give it to the oldest son who, you know, may not be very, uh, uh, very reliable. But again, this is a statement of Cousset's um, uh, ability, his leadership, his trustworthiness, uh, and so he moves the Quraysh tribe down from Syria uh, because he's now in charge of the Kaaba. Uh, he uh, doesn't rebuild, but he uh, renovates the Kaaba. He greatly um, enhances the buildings around it. He has his own family build their houses around the Kaaba, essentially starting to build a city around it. Uh, and he's the one who really starts providing support for the pilgrims. Okay, so this is definitely not a violent takeover. Uh, he's been chosen, I mean, essentially because of his, his service, okay? Um, and this is going to be an important role of the Quraysh from here on out, is that they provide um, support for the pilgrims, including food, uh, because, I mean, you, you're going through a desert to get there. It's pretty rough. Uh, in fact, this remains the, the duty of the tribe who controls the Kaaba, to today, of course, uh, the Saudi government has now, I mean, a, a ministry and a, a huge, huge multi-billion dollar operation providing support to the pilgrims. Okay, and uh, another theme that we're going to see over and over again is the idea that there's always a favorite, right? Um, Kusei is the favorite even though he's a son-in-law. Uh, if this sounds parallel to something we've heard before in Islamic history, then keep it in mind. Okay, it's reinforcing what's going to come later. Okay, so not only does he he do this stuff uh, dealing with the Kaaba, but Kusay establishes something kind of like a town hall in Mecca. It's called Beit al Nedwa, uh, and, and Nedwa you, you may know is a word for debate. And so, I mean, this is literally what it is, right? It's a place where, you know, the elders can come together and consult and debate things. And this is representing Arab-style leadership. Again, we don't have strong kings. We don't have absolute rulers. Um, yeah, we, of course, we don't have democracy either. But there's this idea of consultation amongst the the elder men in the group. Now, this place is going to get a bad name later on because, of course, wh what they're going to end up doing is spending a lot of time meeting to debate what to do about Muhammad and, you know, how to stop him and so forth. And this is a big issue with, you know, anything dealing with Quraysh uh, in any of these stories is that, you know, for for a period of time in the stories, they have to be the bad guys. Because these are the ones who control Mecca, they control the Kaaba, um, you know, which is a big pagan operation. They're making a lot of money off it. And of course, they're going to resist the message of Islam. And individuals are going to resist and become famous for fighting against Islam. But most of them are going to end up being converted and fighting for Islam. And of course, the entire Quraysh is going to end up um, becoming converted and then... Um, leading the, the Kaaba as a uh, center of pilgrimage for God. So there's this, they're, they're the good guys and they're the bad guys at different times. And so there's this tension uh, you see already in the stories of, well, we got to have them doing bad things when, you know, when the actual message comes, but also we want to show that they're, you know, really not bad guys to begin with. Okay. So anyway, that's just a, a little tangent there, but you're going to see some of this good and bad. Why, you know, why are we painting such a nice picture of Kusay when later on the Quraysh are going to end up being the, the enemies? Okay. All right, so uh, 
as I said, there is always a preferred, a preferred uh, son, a preferred descendant, and this sounds bad to us, right? I mean, because if if you say this is my favorite child, uh, you know, you're you're going to be made a bad parent unless you like you're you're joking about it, right? This is okay. The dog is my favorite, uh, right? If you say something like that, it's okay. But I mean, to say this is I mean, to accuse someone of having a favorite kid in our society is is bad. Um, it's not. It's not in this society. It's not looked upon that way because there is always this expectation that when things have to pass to the next generation, I'm going to pass it on to my most trustworthy offspring. And it, it could be the, the youngest kid in the bunch, right? And so the idea of having a, quote, favorite um really is as bad as it sounds to us it's it's seen as a good and needed thing uh at the time so anyway Kusei's favorite is his grandson Hashem and this name is going to be very important he becomes the custodian of the Kaaba and he is famous for his honest and gener- generous handling of duties um and in fact, one of his names that he gets—it's—it's um, it's not a nickname. It's—I mean—it's it's actually his name, Hashem, means to pulverize. Now, it's not talking about destroying your enemies, although it can mean that. Hashema uh, can mean that. This is actually referring to uh, pulverizing grain. And the reason he gets this name for pulverizing grain is for feeding the pilgrims. Uh, He's the first one to feed the pilgrims, and one of his other names, his full name becomes Hashem the Starving, because he is said to have gone hungry in order to feed the pilgrims during uh, times of shortage. Okay, so as we're getting closer now, a lot more, a lot more stories, a lot more traditions surrounding these characters. Okay, so Hashem, uh, he is said to have fought with his brother Abdul Shams. Well, he actually did that. I mean, for, for sure, we know he did fight with his brother Abdul Shams for control of the Kaaba. Now, the some of the traditions about the fighting between them, though. Um, are somewhat somewhat legendary. We don't know. Uh, one tradition says that they were co-joined twins, and specifically with Hashem's toes being attached to uh, Abdul Shems's forehead, and that they were struggling to be the first out of the womb. Uh, now, of course, they're struggling to be the first, but you know, if if Hashem's toes are attached to Abdul Shems's forehead, I mean that that. Tell you, you can figure out that Hashem's coming out first, and Abdul Shems is like trying to grab onto him. Now, if this sounds similar to the Esau and Jacob story in the Bible, um, it is. I don't. I mean, even the rest of the story is going to be uh, fairly similar as well. So their father, who is Abdul Manaf, uh, separates them with a sword. You got to cut the toes loose, which causes bleeding, as you would expect. And some of the the soothsayers at the time said this was a bad omen, that this meant they were going to be fighting, right? It's it's similar with with Esau and Jacob. There's a clot of blood and 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 so forth. Uh, okay, so anyway, uh, they they do fight for um, control of. The Kaaba, and I should mention, I mentioned Hashem's name, the name that he eventually gets, refers to his generosity in, you know, making bread for the pilgrims. Uh, his brother's name, Abdushems, means literally the one who worships the sun. Okay, so, we, you know, we, you're kind of getting the, the parallel here, right? Okay, uh, but this is, is, we're starting now to get into some very familiar names. Uh, these will become important later on. We kind of have to track these. Abdul Shems, okay, who is sort of the, he's the, the bad guy brother of Hashem. Uh, his son is named Umayyah, 
Now that name you will recognize, of course, because Umayya is the founder of the Umayyad branch of the Quraysh, and they're going to become extremely important. Uh, the third caliph is going to be from this branch, and the first real dynasty, the Umayyad Caliphate, is going to, I mean, obviously come from Umayya. Okay, uh, but we're, we're setting up this opposition between Hashem and Umayya. Uh, and that, that division, that separation is going to become very important, and you already know how that plays out uh, into many, many uh, later conflicts. So you can see a lot of these famous names that are popping up now, these are going to be the names that are going to go into whole branches of uh, you mean Islamic society and Islamic history. Okay. Uh, in addition, though, to what he does in the Kaaba, uh, Hashem really helps to establish Mecca as an economic power. And this is setting up the trade routes to go through Mecca. Uh, they go to Yemen to the south and Syria to the north. And, of course, I mean, the other way to go is to go by the Red Sea. But he uh, is very important in establishing these caravan routes and, you know, going on them, checking them, going to both sides and making sure things are working. And he's such a great dealer that he would go to Yemen. He would meet the trading ships that were coming in. Of course, Yemen on the corner of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, this is a stopping place if you're coming from India and Asia, also coming up from uh, the east coast of Africa. Uh, they would unload goods there and transport them one way or another, um, you know, up to, up to Egypt, up to the Levant, and on to Europe. So what Hashem would do is he would go down there, he would meet the ships, he would talk to them, he would make deals for the best stuff and have it shipped up to Mecca. I mean, getting his trade route into this. Okay, so, I mean, this, of course, is very important as well for the history of Mecca. Now, Hashem is said to have been a Hanif. We've mentioned Hanifs before. These are seen as being one of the true monotheists, okay? Technically not a Jew or a Christian, but somebody who stuck to the original monotheism as established by uh, Abraham and Ishmael. Now, what, you know, what exactly in, in reality were the Hanifs? Um, to the extent that they existed, they, they may have been a branch from Judaism or, or from Christianity, an offshoot from that. But the idea is that Hashem, again, he's not a pagan. Okay. And so by this time, the Hashemite clan, this is the specific sub-clan of the Quraysh that comes from Hashem, uh, they have become so important that they are basically now like royalty in Mecca. Uh, and again, they're going to end up being the bad guys for a while, and then they're going to end up being the good guys for a long time. But of course, Hashem, Hashemite, this, uh, this word is very important even unto this day. So this is the specific sub-clan uh, from which the prophet is going to come. Okay, so we're down now to Hashem, and so we're only two generations away from the prophet. Uh, so Hashem's son is Abdul Muttalib, and he is the father of Abdullah, and Abdullah is going to be the father of the prophet Muhammad. However, Abdullah dies two months before uh, the prophet's birth. Some versions say six months, uh, but he, he definitely predeceases the prophet. And so once we get to this point, talking about the birth of the prophet, there are a number of miraculous signs associated with the prophet's birth, including the palace of the Persian king collapses uh, when he's born. Now this gets very controversial. Uh, and, and, and just like there are all kinds of traditions in Christianity um, dealing with things or revolving around the birth of Christ that we don't find in the Bible and that are of, of questionable authenticity. I mean, some of them we, we can see exactly where they came from. 
uh, again, it's the same here. You know, we're not talking for the most part about um, things that are attested to in the Quran itself or in any other scripture for that matter, but which become traditions. And so this gets very controversial because these traditions are, are very important in popular worship. Uh, they mean a lot to people, uh, but uh, conservative scholars don't like this, uh, in, in many cases don't like these traditions because a lot of them are not substantiated, and it starts to sound like, I mean, it starts to sound a lot like what Christianity was doing, was, was spawning lots and lots of these stories about miracles of saints and so forth. Okay, so... Um, you know, and also this is seen by some as detracting from the importance of the Prophet Muhammad's miracle, which is the Quran. And so you know, strictly conservative scholars would say, no, you know, Muhammad's miracle is the Quran, uh, an illiterate giving us the, the Quran. He's not doing Jesus-style miracles, not turning water into wine and so forth, right? And so giving these similar stories is, is kind of drifting off in that area. Um, so, but anyway, they, they do persist, and, and people have different opinions on them. I mean, there are descriptions that uh, the prophet was surrounded by a halo. Uh, he was uncommonly beautiful. However, we don't get any physical description, and we're not supposed to be making images. We don't make images of the Prophet anyway, at least in Sunni Islam. Um, we don't do that anyway, so this, this becomes sort of a, a controversial thing. Okay, anyway, getting past some of those miraculous uh, traditions, uh, as was the custom at the time, Boys in the city, in the quote city, I mean, Mecca is a city by their standards, by our standards, it would be a pretty rustic place, but they were sent out to the desert to be raised by Bedouin for the first few years to develop character, also to get the clear desert air, uh, So, and this, I mean, actually goes on to this day. Uh, there's a great respect for Bedouin as being pure, being pure in their virtues, uh, particularly uh, Bedouin Arabic being purer. You know, you, a lot of uh, scholars go out to live with the Bedouin in order to get, you know, quote, correct, pure Arabic, and so forth. Now, uh, historians question whether this actually happened, but it is a, a part of the later traditions uh, that develop. And so the, the prophet goes out, he lives with a woman named Halima in the desert, and again, it's going to be part of a consistent part of this story that the Bedouin family he lives with, they prefer Muhammad to their own children, uh, they ask to keep him for an extra five years, and again, this is not to be seen as a bad thing, to say that they prefer the prophet over their own kids, that sounds maybe bad to us. It, it's not meant to sound that way. However, during this time, when the Prophet Muhammad is living with the Bedouin family, with Halima in the desert, his real mother dies. And so by the time he is returned to the Hashemite clan, he is a true orphan. Uh, and he's put in the care of his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, who dies a year later. And then he's given to his uncle, his, his elder uncle, who is Abu Talib. This, again, you may recognize is another famous name. Abu Talib is the father of Ali, who will be the prophet's cousin, and later his son-in-law. So very important. But this is whom uh, the prophet Muhammad spends his early years with. And it's said uh, he's raised to the age of 40 by Abu Talib because this continues, it does not end, you know, when you, you reach 18 years of age. And again, um, I, I don't have to tell you, it's said that Abu Talib prefers Muhammad over his own children, and again, this is a, this is a good thing. Okay, so what does all of this mean? We have a lot of lineages and a lot of names that are going to be uh, important. Uh, one thing is you can see we have varying degrees of closeness to the prophet here. 
And as the story goes on, these branches are going to become very important political um, branches. And so that degree of closeness becomes a big uh, point of your legitimacy. Okay, so like, for example, the biggest revolution, most famous in Islamic history is the Abbasids overthrowing the Umayyad Caliphate in 750. Now, as we said, the Umayyads traced their lineage to Umayyah, who was a brother of Hashem. Uh, he's possibly an adopted brother. Um, but by the time they take over, they're the strongest branch. Okay, so this would make him a second cousin of the prophet, uh, the way the gene genealogy works. Okay, now, neither side has an actual lineage from the prophet. Okay, so we're talking about basically one level of genealogical separation. But the Abbasids, who wanted to overthrow the Umayyads, I mean, basically for political reasons, I mean, the Umayyads got to take over because they were the strongest. I mean, literally, they were the, the best at expanding the empire. And so uh, we were able to overlook a lot of the other claims and accept them, even though they're, again, like a second cousin branch. Of course, the the Alids, who become the Shia, do not. But after a century, when um, there is a strong uh, motivation to overthrow the Umayyads, um, the way that the Abbasids are able to put this together and give themselves legitimacy is to claim descent from Abbas, who is an uncle of the Prophet, but who is from the Hashemite side. So again, this is one level closer, okay, to the Hashemite subclan versus the Umayyad clan, which is just one, I mean, Umayyad is a brother of Hashem. But this is enough to justify um, overthrowing the Umayyads. Okay, however, it's not as close a lineage as the lineage from Ali, and this is where the Shia say it should come from. And so they again rebel, so claiming they have a closer claim. So these degrees of closeness become very important, and this becomes even more important because uh, the prophet does not have any sons who live to adulthood, so he does not have a direct patrilineal lineage, Okay, so which, which makes this a little bit um, more complicated. However, all of these people are from the tribe of Quraysh. Okay, so that gives the Quraysh, uh, as, as the empire gets bigger and bigger, Quraysh in itself is uh, seen as preferable. Okay, but within the Quraysh, you know, the Hashemites are the closer group. And so today, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan bases its legitimacy on being from that subclan, being of the descendants of Hashem unlike the descendants of Umayyah. Okay. And this is no small matter, uh, by the way. Uh, Hashemites controlled Mecca right up into the 20th century when they were driven out by the Saudis, who really do not have any genealogical lineage to the Prophet. They have tried to produce, at, at times they have tried to produce one, but um, it's never really been accepted. Uh, so to say that the Jordanians still resent this would be an understatement. Um, during the Gulf War, for example, when King Hussein of Jordan, who uh, is, of course, the Hashemite leader and who opposed the U.S.-Saudi coalition at the time, uh, he instructed people to call him Sharif Hussein, which, of course, this is the title for the rightful ruler of Mecca, right, the guy who was driven out. Okay, but after that, uh, the Jordanians were allied with the U.S. and the Saudis, as they have been for most of their history. So, you know, that sort of aggravation kind of went away, and that whole incident uh, was sort of faded from public view. But it still shows how important these different designations are. Okay, so what else does this mean? Well, it means, for one thing, that the Prophet spends most of his life as an orphan. So in Islam, in Islamic law, we have a great emphasis on the treatment of widows and orphans. This would be compounded by the fact that the 
next um, several decades and generations are going to see a lot of warfare, and so there are going to be a lot of widows and orphans as well in the culture. So this it becomes very important. Okay, and furthermore, the fact that the uh, prophet is essentially an orphan and he has no male children who live to adulthood, so this is going to mean he has no patrilineal descendants. Now, all of this would seem to argue against the importance of lineage, especially as Islam is already criticizing Christianity for putting intermediaries in between the individual and God. But nonetheless, as we're going to see, lineages become very, very important and people fighting over who has the best one, even though there really is no direct lineage. So it's really hard not to see this as a carryover of Bedouin culture into the religion. Okay, so that's gives us a little idea of the importance of this. Uh, what happens later on in life? Now, during the childhood of the prophet, there are many statements made about his future and miracles which are attributed to him, which again gets into the realm of tradition. But one of the best known of these, which appears in almost every account, uh, occurs when the prophet is 12 years old. He, of course, has not uh, begun to uh, prophesy at this point. Uh, but his uncle Abu Talib, who is a merchant, takes him on a trip to Syria, which is, we said, this is one of the big things uh, for the Meccan economy, and uh, the prophet will be involved in this later on in his life. Well, when they go to Syria, which of course is Christian at the time, uh, they pass by a Christian monk named Bahira, who stopped them and invites them in. Now, they had passed him, at least uh, Abu Talib had passed this guy many times before, uh, and he's a monk, he lives out in the desert, and so he, he doesn't have a lot of contact with people, and he never showed any interest in the caravans that were passing by. This time, however, he makes a big feast, and he says of Muhammad, quote, "'This is the master of all humans.'" God will send him a message which will be blessings to all beings. And they ask, how did he know this? And Bahira says, when I saw you coming from the south, all the trees and rocks prostrated themselves. This they do only for a prophet. And further, he warned Abu Talib not to bring Muhammad to Syria because he would be in danger uh, from the Jews there. In some versions, it says he would be in, in danger from the Orthodox Christians there. So um, they sent him back to Mecca. Okay, now this is the basic story, and it, it appears um, in pretty much all the Syrah, but there are many variations on this. Uh, one of them says that uh, Muhammad sat under a tree, and when the sun moved during the day, the branches would move to shade him. And when he got up to walk, there was a cloud that would follow him and keep him shaded. Now, we also find this story reflected in by Christian writers as well, but of course not with the same uh, conclusions. So this character, he becomes known in Christian accounts as Sergius, which is a variation of George, which is uh, probably what his first name was. And even in the Muslim Sira, uh, his first name is said to be George, which is a, even today is a very common Christian name in the area. Okay, so he was fairly known in uh, Syria, where he was a Nessarian monk, which that made himself a heretic in Orthodox Christianity. And as we've said, at the time, the Orthodox, the Byzantines, considered lots and lots of people to be heretics, and they weren't very kind in how they treated them. And so it's not unusual that George would have gone out to the desert to become a monk. Uh, this is really where the whole practice of monks begins. Uh, it's famous in Egypt, uh, Coptic monks going out to the desert to pray. Okay, so all the sources, Christian and Muslim, agree about a meeting between Muhammad and Sergius, or Bahira, as he's called. Now, 
for Christians, they emphasize a different aspect of this, and they see this as a source for the prophet's message. And one of the earliest writers who, Christian writers who writes about uh, the prophet is St. John of Damascus, and he's writing fairly shortly after this time. Uh, and he says that Muhammad, after being introduced to the Old and New Testaments from Sergius, quote, devised his own heresy, which is what the Christians considered Islam to be at the time. And this, this is what um, St. John would have considered uh, Sergius to be, his heretic of his own. So like we said, the, the Orthodox are basically considering all these different sects out there to be heretical, and we've talked about how many centuries it took to, to put together any sort of consensus on what were the Christian scriptures, what are going to become the Bible and the doctrine, and so there were a lot of different groups out there that were considered to be heretics, and when the prophet first comes along bringing his message, he's seen as just another one. I mean, there are a lot of other people claiming to be prophets, bringing messages um, in the Christian world, and so that's what they see him as. Okay, uh, other writers also use this to undermine the claim of Muhammad being illiterate and having received the revelation directly from the angel Gabriel, which of course is considered the great miracle of Islam, the fact that this illiterate man receives this entire message himself. They're going to say that he got most of the background from the monk, Sergius, and that he had extensive knowledge of the Christian scriptures, and therefore that's what this became a source of the the message that he delivers. Okay, and the, of course they're going to claim that this is not just a one-time meeting between these two, but that Bahira essentially becomes a teacher to Muhammad. Of course, Muhammad is going to work on this caravan route. He's going to go up to north to Syria many times. That's going to become his his normal job. Um, and this guy, in all of the accounts, has decided that uh, the Prophet Muhammad is special. And so the Christians see, well, okay, that's where he gets this from, this message that he delivers. This is where he's getting uh, getting it from mostly. Okay, so we see the same story being taken and being used different ways. Now, interestingly, the the Muslim response to this is that uh, Sergius, or Bahira, had the original uncut versions of the gospel, and that's how he recognized Muhammad as a prophet. And so, as I, I just said, you know, the process of the many, many manuscripts floating around in the first three centuries of Christianity being consolidated into books that eventually become the New Testament, I mean, it takes about 300 years, um, actually takes over the, uh, over that amount of time, and it was a very messy and contentious process, right? Several very popular Gospels never made it into the Bible. Uh, there are multiple versions of the one that did. Uh, even today, if you look at the Gospel of Mark and almost any version of the Bible, the last chapter is going to have a parenthetical note saying there's no agreement whether this is was originally part of the scriptures and so forth. And so um, the Muslim scholars who are aware of this believe that there were references in the original versions of the Gospels that did make it very clear that another prophet was coming, um, but during this very long process in which they believe that the, uh, the message was definitely compromised and corrupted, a lot of that was edited out. But interestingly, even with that, even after that uh, process, uh, Muslim scholars um, will look at the Christian Gospels today, even the ones that have, after that whole process, that made it into the final New Testament, and see these as prefiguring the coming of Muhammad. Uh, so, for example, uh, it's very clear, even in, in any, any version of the Bible, Jesus does speak of one who's going to come after him. He says, he, 
when he leaves, he will send someone else to, to minister to the believers. Now, Christians say that this is the Holy Spirit that he refers to. Muslims, of course, say this, this refers to Muhammad, and the, the references are just, they're so short that, you know, it, it could be either one. You just really can't tell. So anyway, this is all interesting ways that a single incident, which is recorded in all the records, is interpreted in different ways. Well, after this time, the next most famous uh, incident that is going to take place in the life of the prophet involves the rebuilding of the Kaaba. Now, up to this time, the prophet has a reputation for being a very honest guy. I mean, he's not a prophet at this point. He's not delivering a message from God, but he has a, a reputation of being very honest and trustworthy, so he gains the name El-Amin, which is what that, that name means. And this is typically the way people get names, like Hashem. You get a name based on you know, what it is that you do. Okay, so at this point, the Quraysh, who are in charge of the Kaaba, are in the process of rebuilding it. And, of course, the Kaaba had, it was old, but five years before the beginning of uh, the revelation to Muhammad, there was a flood, which, of course, very rare occasion uh, in that part of the world that buildings are not made to withstand, which did extensive damage to the Kaaba. And so as part of their responsibility, they decided they had to completely demolish and rebuild the Kaaba. And it said that, of course, no one wanted to, you know, take a, a hammer and knock down the Kaaba because it was God's house. Uh, and so uh, finally, uh, Al-Walid Al-Makhzumi, is said to be the one who came up and said he was willing to do it. Um, and he started to knock down the wall, and everyone joined in. Okay, so they rebuilt the Kaaba, and of course there are four sides on it. It's a square building. And so each of the subclans w was entrusted with building one of the sides so there wouldn't be conflict. And when they were almost done they came to the final step, which is placing the cornerstone, which, of course, as we mentioned last time, the cornerstone of the Kaaba in Mecca is a black stone. It's called the black stone. It's said to have been from a meteorite. There are lots, lots of traditions around this stone. Some of them say that this was first given to Adam and so forth. Uh, but the black stone is still there to this day uh, on the corner of the Kaaba. Well, this, of course, is, you know, the, the part of honor, right? This is the most important part. And so the tribe started to argue about who was going to get to place the final black stone. And, of course, they couldn't agree. They all wanted to do it. They came to a standoff, and it said this lasted for like five days, just arguing about who should have the right to place the stone. And so finally they agreed a suggestion is made, okay, the next person who comes along, the next person who enters the Kaaba, and at that time, there is not the Grand Mosque around it, there is just a, a gate. The next person who walks through that gate will get to decide who is going to place the black stone. And of course, the next person to walk through the gate after they said this is the Prophet Muhammad, El Amin, and so they tell him, it's up to you to decide to do this. Now, of course, the assumption everyone has is, okay, this is sort of like rolling the dice because whoever walks through there next is going to pick their own tribe. They're going to pick their own sub-clan. So they see Muhammad walk in. They say, okay, he's a Hashemite, so obviously he's going to give the honor to the Hashemites, but, you know, we're taking a chance. Instead, what he does is there are four major clan leaders there who are uh, disputing, and he has them bring out a cloth, and each one takes a hold of one corner of the cloth, and they put the stone 
in the center and that this way they all carry the cornerstone and they all collectively put it in together and this becomes one incident you know a very famous incident showing not only the trustworthiness but the wisdom of the prophet before he was a prophet and also this idea of trying to build unity amongst the tribes and build that around the worship in the Kaaba instead of the disunity. Okay, so this is taking us pretty much right up to the beginning of the prophet's message, but this sort of story leads into the question of, okay, well, what was his religion at this time before he became a, a prophet? And so all the versions of the Sirah make clear that Muhammad, even before he became a prophet, did not take place, uh, did not take part, excuse me, in the paganism of the time. Okay, that he worshipped Allah, he worshipped um, the God who is the God of the Kaaba at this time, um, and that he did not take part in any of the pagan activities nor would he be involved in anything uh, related to them. So like eating meat that had been dedicated to the idols, which is also, this, this is a theme in the, um, in the New Testament as well. But there were a lot of things in, involved with worship of these 360 pagan idols, and he did not participate in those. Otherwise... Right, because there isn't really an active church or anything going on. Uh, he is said to spend much of his time in contemplation. Uh, that's said to be contemplation of God, though we don't really know. And he was particularly fond of going to a cave outside of Mecca, which still exists to this day, the cave of Hira. And this is where the revelations will begin. But this pattern was already established in his life before this happened and now at this point we're talking about you know some of the most famous things that you know most everyone has heard but this is the life of the prophet as related to us in the numerous biographies of him right up to the point where he actually begins to prophecy and so with that uh, we will leave you. Thank you very much for your kind attention uh, to this episode, and we hope to see you back here again in the future as we continue this story. Thank you very much. Shukran Jazilan wa ma salama.